Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Presidential Elections of American History. My name is Griffin Kernan. You probably know me from my regular student interview segment on the main pod. And don't worry, I'll still conduct sweet interviews every month with a new interesting student to talk to. I will also now be bringing you an awesome new podcast series about the interesting facet of American history, politics, civics, and fundraiser trivia games that have way too many mulligans for people to buy. That facet would be an in-depth look at presidential elections of American history. My purpose with this new project is to inform and educate listeners of the history of the United States, social problems, economics, politics, civics, American culture, and more through the lens of presidential elections past. Before we begin, I'll offer a disclaimer. At times, I may offer opinions and personal perceptions with an inherent bias, but I will try to mainly stay neutral in my subjective analysis of the social and political climate of these different time periods. If I ever do bring up the politics of the time, especially in a more recent elections, I will do my best to highlight and fairly present the opinions and thought processes of both parties. This allows you, the listener, to think critically about this aspect of elections and to come to your own conclusions based on the facts and analysis I present. Without further ado, let's get started. Let's go back to the year 2000. The 54th presidential election took place on November 7th, 2000, in all 50 states of these United States, plus the District, of, the District of Columbia, which at the time of this podcast is not yet a state, but it's in the ratification progress in Congress. The last four years since Bill Clinton's re-election campaign in 1996 were interesting, to say the least. Clinton had found himself in the barrel when Democrats failed to retake the Congress in 1998, and a sex scandal was uncovered between him and a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. After the scandal was uncovered and Clinton was pressed on the matter, he claimed that he did not have sexual relations with her. This statement was quite the lawyer's dodge on his end, but the Republican majority under Speaker Newt Gingrich in the House of Representatives was not so easily convinced by Clinton's legal charm. The Republicans were convinced that Clinton had lied under oath about his relationship with Ms. Lewinsky, and also argued that Clinton had obstructed an investigation into this affair during the 1996 campaign, as uncovered by the uh, Republican um, prosecution lawyer, uh, Ken Starr. With this evidence and the power of the majority in the House, they decided to impeach Clinton on three um, charges and set up a trial in the Senate. The Senate, lacking a Republican supermajority, or two-thirds majority of votes, had voted to acquit Clinton on both charges of perjury and one charge of obstruction of justice. However, this impeachment would lead the Democrats to politically distance themselves from Clinton's presidency during the 2000 campaign and put the Democrats at an instant disadvantage in the Deep South, where Clinton was, himself was still very popular. However, regardless of scandal, the American economy had never been stronger. The internet was booming, and America was entering the 21st century, the strongest it had been since at least World War II, possibly ever. Democrat primary, with Al Gore being the incumbent vice president at the time and being the top official in the Democratic Party besides Bill Clinton, who was term limited, he was the presumptive or expected nominee for the Democrat nomination. He did face a minor challenge against Senator Bill Bradley from New Jersey, a former basketball player for the New York Knicks, but had also dropped out after a poor showing in the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. At the Democratic National Convention, or DNC for short, he would pick Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut as his running mate. It's also worthwhile to mention that Joe Lieberman 
was the first ever Jewish candidate on a major party ticket. This was a very politically interesting choice on Gore's end because Joe Lieberman was one of the more conservative Democrats in Congress at the time, whereas Gore was far more liberal than Lieberman in comparison. I would even argue myself that this is the closest America has gotten in recent years to what is called a unity ticket, which is a theoretical presidential ticket in which the two running mates are president and vice president are from two different political parties, like the Democrats and Republicans, or ideologies like neoliberal and conservative, for instance. The Republican primary and the contest of the Republican nomination were tremendously competitive during the 2000 election in stark contrast to the Democrat convention, especially after being locked out of the White House in 1992 and despite possessing a majority of seats in Congress and a majority of state governments during Clinton's presidency, the Republicans were eager to take back the White House. 13 Republicans would run for the nomination. Um, Herman Cain was an African-American businessman with heavy ties to the Reagan administration, but dropped out early on due to a lack of support. John Kasich, who would become the future governor of Ohio, also ran this election, but got minimal support and dropped out early before the Iowa caucuses. Former governor of Tennessee, Lamar Alexander, also ran, but failed to really gain any traction. Same story goes for Elizabeth Dole, Bob Smith, Orrin Hatch, Gary Bauer, and Pat Buchanan, who, interesting enough, would run as a third-party candidate for the Reform Party during the general election. Former Vice President Dan Quayle, who served under George H.W. Bush, did run too, but he performed so poorly in the Iowa caucuses that not only did he exit the race, but he never returned the mainstream politics again. Steve Forbes ran too, a businessman from New Jersey, and he got support mainly for being in favor of flat taxes and tax cuts. Alan Keyes, a former U.S. ambassador, stayed in the race the longest before dropping out despite his long-shot status. An interesting fact about him, he was also the first and remains the only presidential candidate in American history to jump into a mosh pit on the campaign trail. The primary candidate that put up the best fight was John McCain, a moderate senator from Arizona. He was centrist and known widely for his wishy-washy voting record and his irritable temper. However, he had a distinguished um, career as a Vietnam vet and was also, unfortunately, a, a victim of uh, of torture as a prisoner of war when he was captured by the North Vietnamese. Um, he mainly failed to gain support on Super Tuesday, which is the day in which the majority of states hold their primary caucuses. And he tried his best, but in the end, he was no match for George W. Bush. George W. Bush was the incumbent governor of Texas at the time and the son of the former president, George H.W. Bush. Bush was credited with winning the primary mainly because in such a crowded Republican field, he had the highest name recognition and the right connections with the right name in the party. When he was searching for a vice president, he asked Dick Cheney to help him find a running mate. Dick Cheney was a former chief of staff, which is like the president's um, vizier almost, like his um, personal aide, to Nixon and Ford, as well as an advisor to Reagan and a, a, a U.S. House representative from Wyoming. He instead had Bush end up picking him to be his running mate. Interestingly enough, Bush and Cheney were both registered in Texas to vote, but since they could potentially lose any electoral votes they gained in Texas due to what are called favorite son laws, Cheney changed his registration back to his home state of Wyoming in time for the 2000 election. Now, normally I don't mention third parties as far as candidates are concerned, but considering that third parties played a huge role in this election, especially with the Florida recount, I will mention them here. 
There was an increased third-party presence in 2000 with popular lawyer Ralph Nader running for president alongside eco-activist Winona LaDuke. Ralph Nader was famous for passing strict consumer protection laws and generally being a leftist and outspoken critic of what he called the blob of two parties in which he argued got nothing meaningful done due to both sides being so similar and so moderate in comparison. Nader and LaDuke both had run as part of the Green Party and were focused solely on progressive policy, LGBT marriage, and conservationism. They were also so important mainly because people still argue to this day whether or not Ralph Nader split the vote enough to cause the Florida recount incident or if the spoiler effect is just a myth. Moving on to campaign issues during this time, this was really not an election chock full of exciting campaign issues. Al Gore's platform was mainly a moderately liberal one that was um, consisted of a more progressive domestic policy, which was essentially just a continuation of what Clinton had already been doing for the last eight years in economic issues. On top of this, though, there was a budget surplus in the year 2000. He believed that the budget surplus should be kept in what is called a lockbox or a rainy day fund for the government in case they somehow run out of money down the line. Bush's platform was quite conservative for the time, and he was a more isolationist candidate in comparison. He, campa he campaigned on bringing troops home from Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Kosovo, and other UN missions because he didn't really want American troops to be focused on what he called nation-building outside of America. He also campaigned on bipartisanship and less corruption and elitism in Washington. On the surplus, he wanted to spend it on the military and to reintroduce trickle-down economics because it had worked so well before. This is especially strange because his father, President George H.W. Bush, actually opposed trickle-down economics, dismissing it as voodoo economics because he considered it that they would magically be able to fund the military as well as cutting taxes. Overall, there, were, there weren't any stark differences in policy because this was the age of conservatism after all. The parties were mainly in a bipartisan consensus on the main issues of the nation at the time, and the election ended up being more of a referendum of the cultural state of the country and whether Americans wanted to stick with the Democrat incumbents in the White House or not. And the winner of this election was... Well, we don't know. Stand by. Yes, of course, the recount in Florida was the biggest part of this election, and in my opinion, the most interesting part of this election occurred after the voting was all done. Florida was the big electoral vote prize in this election, being the biggest swing state, the closest swing state, and the last state to be called in this election. In a state that cast 6 million ballots, only 300 votes initially separated the two candidates. That meant that in Florida law, there had to be a manual recount of the votes, meaning that Al Gore could choose whatever counties he wanted the recount in. He chose Miami-Dade County, Broward County, Volusia County, and Palm Beach counties, which were all highly populated and tended to vote Democrat. However, the recount had to take place within a few days through the recount laws stating that in, in Florida, that election had to be certified on the 14th of November, which was seven days after the election and three days after the court order. Gore asked for an extension of the recount, but was denied by the Secretary of State in Florida, Catherine Harris, who George W. Bush's brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, actually appointed to that position. This led Al Gore to sue the Florida Supreme Court over an extension of the recount. The Florida Supreme Court agreed with Gore and let these counties keep recounting, during the count, there had been discovered that the election system in Florida 
was a complete dumpster fire. Hot garbage. No two counties voted the same way. Some used electronic machines, which were broke and glitched quite often. Others used punch cards, which caused hanging chads, causing the ballots to not be read properly. And others were done by scantrons and also read ballots wrong if they weren't shaded in properly. Even worse for the Gore camp, Miami-Dade County gave up their recount early because the new deadline, um, November 26th, wouldn't be enough time to finish recounting in such a populous county in their opinion. After they decided to do this, Al Gore then sued them to finish their recount as the court ordered. But the Supreme Court said they didn't have to do jack squat, buckaroo. The next day, Florida certified the election for Bush without even finishing the recount in any of the counties. So Gore sued again, arguing that the count had to be finished since it was court-ordered. The circuit courts that the election ruled that the election had to end, but they appealed to the Florida Supreme Court who ruled that the election recount was court-ordered and had to be completed regardless of date. They also ruled that all votes would need to be recounted manually. Enter Bush's legal team, who sued the Florida Supreme Court and Al Gore, which got the case appealed to the Supreme Court who hear, who agreed to hear the argument. Bush's camp argued that the Supreme Court had violated Article 2, Section 1, Article uh, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which basically claims that each state legislature reserves the right to appoint their own slate of electors to the Electoral College. They also argued the recount inhibited Florida's ability to appoint electors to the Supreme to, to the Electoral College. They also argued that Gore and the Florida Supreme Court had violated the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment, which states that all people shall be entitled to equal protection under the law, regardless of any basis. By denying Bush a say in how the recount should be counted, although this argument was legally much flimsier than the other one, they claimed that Bush should be the winner of the election. In response, Gore argued that Bush's proposal violated the, quote, intent of the voter standard, which means that a voter's visible intention is who they indeed voted for regardless of other factors. This means that the equal protection would have to apply to all voters. It would trigger a nationwide recount if Florida state law was opposable to Bush, which was a bad thing for Bush considering how small the margins in other states like New Hampshire and Nevada were too. In the end, the Supreme Court sided with Bush, seven justices to two, deciding that the way Florida's vote is tallied was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause since, quote, it could possibly weigh one voter's ballot over another's, end quote. Gore then tried to appeal for a statewide recount as opposed to a manual recount, but that was stuck, trucked down too by a five to four decision. Since the recount was completed with a certification of a 537 vote lead for Bush, Bush won Florida, and since Florida has a winner-take-all system of elections, which means whoever wins the most popular vote in the state wins all the electoral votes, this meant that Bush had won the election as a whole. Many justices during this case who were normally more federalist and oriented towards state rights had changed their long-standing positions in this case in a suspicious manner, leading many leftists and Democrats to argue that the Supreme Court justices had made this opinion out of their own political opinion rather than an inter authentic interpretation of the Constitution. Republicans and conservatives argued that the state statute of limitations ended regardless of what methods were used where and that compelled justices to rule how they did. 
To this day, many disagree to who actually won the election of 2000, and for good reason, because Bush's presidency was one of the more consequential in, election his in American history. Honestly, we will never know who really won the, the, the 2000 election, but regardless, George W. Bush became the 43rd president of the United States. This was the fourth of five times in U.S. history in which the winner of the popular vote did not become president of the United States as Al Gore had won 500,000 more votes than Bush nationwide. Again, way to go, Electoral College. Well done. Ralph Nader finished third, gaining about 3% of the national popular vote and no electoral votes. Al Gore supporters mainly blamed Ralph Nader's supporters for spoiling the election in favor of Bush. And although the spoiler effect is a real thing, we have no idea if the numbers were great enough to cause a vote split. To this day, it is the closest modern election in U.S. history and second only to the election of 1876 and 1877 in the sheer confusion and closeness of the situation. Well, that's a 2000 election for you. Thank you for tuning in to this first episode of Presidential Elections of American History, and I'll see you for the next episode.